Today, as we move through our survey of the Bible and we get to the shocking book of Habakkuk, I'm going to begin with a shocking video. Colonel Jessup, did you order the Congress? You don't have to answer that question. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Habakkuk is all about questions, answers, and the truth. My question for you is, do you have any questions for God? When you look around the world, (laughs) do you have questions that you want some answers for? And can you handle the truth that comes back at you? Will you trust God with the answers that you get? I love this book. As I have moved toward Habakkuk, a number of people have told me they love the book of Habakkuk, and I, and I love it as well. Um, Habakkuk is a really, really powerful book. In fact, it is quoted three times. I'm going to mention this repeatedly. It's quoted three times in the New Testament at very significant points because Habakkuk is the guy in the Old Testament who tells us, the just shall live by faith. But that's not something that comes quickly to him. That, that is not a, a glib pronouncement. It is, it is through the midst of hard questions for God, difficult answers that he receives back from God, and him settling into the trust. Um, Habakkuk is a, a man who, who is honest with his questions. And I want to encourage you, we should be more honest with our questions for God. Habakkuk is a man who's very personal in what he's doing here. He's sharing his struggle, he's sharing his response to God's answers, and he's finally sharing what I think is just a fantastic, real spiritual example that we can follow. It's a very personal, intimate book. Danny Hayes says this, Habakkuk teaches us that often we do not understand how God is working. Sometimes like Habakkuk, we ask why God does not intervene and do something. This book tells us to trust in God's long-range plan and to wait patiently in the meantime, rejoicing in God's control of the outcome. What's God doing? (laughs) Is he involved? In addition, as Paul so eloquently explains in Romans and Galatians, Faith in God at a critical, is a critical component of a true relationship with God and should be a central feature in our day-to-day understanding of how God works in the world. Faith, life, and salvation are inextricably bound together. Um, this book is going to put together the struggle and the solution. And I want to encourage you to track along with us as we uh, think about how the just live by faith and that that's not just our salvation. It is the core of our salvation, but that continues as a thread through the rest of our life as we live by faith. I've got a couple of resources for you that are out at the table and uh, on the website. One is just a long introduction. It's front and back, but it gives you all of the background information and introduction uh, to the book of Habakkuk. And then there's a focus on chapter three because chapter three is where Habakkuk really gets to his personal response to all that's going on. Bruce Wilkinson gives a summary this way. Habakkuk looks at his native Judah, observes the violence and injustice on every hand, and cries out to God with some perplexing questions. Why are the wicked prospering in the midst of God's people? Why are the righteous beaten down? Why is God seemingly inactive and indifferent in a day of wickedness? God's reply is even more shocking than the conditions in Judah. God assures his prophet he is doing something. 
the Chaldeans, we know them as the Babylonians, a people even more corrupt than God's chosen nation, are about to descend as God's rod of chastening. chastening. Habakkuk reacts with shock and dismay. God patiently instructs his messenger until at last the prophet is able to respond with a psalm of praise. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The movement goes like this. Why is Judah getting away with their wickedness? God says, I'm going to use the Babylonians to judge Judah. He's like, they're more wicked than us. And in the final chapter, he says, I'm just going to have to trust you. And I will wait for your answer. James Bruckner says it this way, the book of Habakkuk is a dialogue between Habakkuk and Yahweh during a vision Habakkuk receives from Yahweh. It begins with Habakkuk's complaint against local corruption and leads to a prophecy that spans 90 years. As he is drawn into a progressively more difficult understanding of faith, it begins with the persistent question, why, and ends with a sung, a sung prayer in wrath, remember mercy, and a confession of faith, though the fig tree does not bud, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. But here's my question for you that he raises. How does Habakkuk move from questioning to his expanded expression of his own faith? How does he go from I'm troubled by all that I see to I am resting and I'm fine, I am waiting for the Lord to play all this out? How does he move from one troubled spot to a resting spot? My answer here at the beginning of the message is this. He moves because he gives full vent to his question and then he trusts in the sovereignty of God. It's not one or the other. It's not just that he just says, oh, I see bad things, I'm gonna trust in God's sovereignty. He actually puts words to it. He expresses it. He gives full vent to the things that are troubling him and he vents that to God. And then God gives him answers. And what he does is he responds back by saying, I will trust. It's full vent and complete trust. It's not just venting to God and then you're fine. And it's not just uh, glibly saying, I trust God. It's actually putting words to what is it that troubles you in the world? And then listening for how God responds to that so that you can trust what he's doing. Once again, how this all fits together, the United Kingdom um, is uh, the, the time under Saul, David, and Solomon. We're far beyond that. The kingdom has divided into the north and the south. And at this point, um, the Assyrians have already taken the northern, captive, the, northern, uh, the northern nation and scattered them around. What's about ready to happen is the Babylonians are about ready to come down and judge these Chaldeans who are going to be used by God to chasten his people. And Habakkuk writes in between those two things. He writes in between the Assyrian captivity of the north and the Babylonians in the south. Um, Habakkuk is a pre-exilic prophet to Judah in the south. This is where he fits down in that. Um, it's maybe helpful to see the progression of, of, of um, dominance, the dominating powers. Um, for a long time, Assyria had been in power. What's happening now is the Babylonians are rising in power and they are going to become very, very dominant. And it's during this time when the Babylonians are rising in power that Habakkuk writes his book. So let's get into some details of who we're talking about. And there's some really interesting things that happen in this book. First of all, who composed Habakkuk? Habakkuk is one of the very few prophets along with Haggai and Zechariah who's simply identified as a prophet. That's all we know. 
We don't know any family. We don't know any towns. We just know he's a prophet. His ministry was in the 7th century B.C. He's not mentioned by name in the New Testament, but he's quoted three times in support of some significant theology we have. In Romans 1.17, when Paul is getting ready in 1.18 to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, um, he quotes Habakkuk. In Galatians, when Paul is presenting the gospel and saying, this is the thing you have to understand, and he goes to the Old Testament for support, he goes to Habakkuk 2.4. And in Hebrews, when the author of Hebrews is, is demonstrating what a life of faith looks like, he quotes Habakkuk 2.4. Habakkuk 2.4 quoted three times in the New Testament at very, very significant points along the way. Um, just as a side note, um, I'm going to tell you, in, in the... Uh, Catholic Bible, they have a book, a set of books called the Apocrypha. Uh, one of the books, there are two additional chapters they have to the book of Daniel. Uh, one is called Susanna, one is called Bell and the Dragon. There are two extra chapters in Daniel. In Bell and the Dragon, um, there's a really fascinating story um, of um, Daniel stepping up, being faithful to the Lord, but he's thrown in the lion's den a second time. And when he's in the lion's den a second time, the story says that Habakkuk is told, Daniel's in Babylon in the lion's den, Habakkuk is told to take him a meal, and he's back in Judah. And Habakkuk says, I don't know where he's at. And an angel picks him up by the hair and takes him to the lion's den, and Habakkuk gives him the stew that he's eating. He hands him the stew, and then the angel takes him back. Okay. Um, it's an interesting story. I think some background of, of a guy who's faithful, who's honest. He, he's able to look at God and go, I don't know where that dude is. I mean, I, I've got this plot, of, this bowl of stew, but Daniel needs it. And the angel just says, okay, take it. He's like, okay, he gives it to him. He goes back, and that's the end of the story. That's it. Interesting. Um, not inspired, but I think certainly interesting. Habakkuk is both philosophical and contemplative. He asks some great questions that have concerned people throughout time. Why does God allow evil? There's even a theological term for it, theodicy. Why does God allow evil? And how is sovereignty working? These are huge questions. Why does God allow bad things to happen? That's his chapter one. How is sovereignty working? That's his chapter two. And his response, that's chapter three. Um, the faith of Habakkuk is expressed in the book as he waits for the Lord's answers to be unfolded and proclaims one of the greatest statements of faith in the entire Bible. As he, as he says, I'm going to crawl up in this watchtower on the wall. I'm going to go up on the wall in a watchtower, and I'm going to see this all unfold. Um, he expresses one of the greatest statements of faith in all of Scripture. Um, we read it before one of our songs today. It, it is the path that he gets after he says, full vent to my questions complete trust in God's sovereignty than an expression of faith. And I love where he lands. Um, Habakkuk is perhaps uh, part of the priestly community uh, involved in worship in chapter three at the very beginning of chapter three, which is really odd because chapter three just sets itself up. It looks like a psalm and it even has a musical heading at the beginning of it. Um, we don't even know what the word means, but it may mean that um, Habakkuk was part of the priestly community that wrote, wrote songs, um, and, and he writes one in chapter 3. 
Who's the audience of Habakkuk? Well, Habakkuk is a representative of this pre-exilic community in Judah. His message is intensely personal, but he would have shared it with the faithful remnant in Judah. It seems like Habakkuk is a representative of the faithful people who are wondering what's going on. Now, it happens in a vision. God reveals to him, and I'm not exactly sure what God reveals, but it seems that God reveals the wickedness. He seems to perhaps reveal one particular event I'm going to talk about in just a moment. And he reveals to Habakkuk how he's going to deal with that. And as he is struggling with this, he represents the nation, but he also represents us as we struggle with what we see going on in the world. This is going to take me a little time to develop. When was Habakkuk written? Though the date's not specific, we know he lived sometime after the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel to the Assyrians in 722 and before the invasion of the Babylonians. Um, The Babylonians are going to invade from Babylon. They're going to come around the Fertile Crescent. They're going to come in. They're going to invade. That invasion is going to take three different um, tax until finally in 586, they're going to wipe out uh, the, the city of Jerusalem. And let me give you a little bit more specifics on this. Um, the Babylonians are on the move. The Assyrians are a dominant power. And then the Babylonians are on the move. And in 612 BC, Nabopolassar, that's this Nebuchadnezzar's dad, Nabopolassar defeats Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. So the Babylonians are now pushing the Assyrians out. And as the Babylonians are pushing the Assyrians out, there's now a major conflict between Babylon, Assyria, and Egypt. And all of these nations are in conflict. In the middle of all of that, one of the good kings of Judah, Josiah, jumps out into the battle. We don't know why. We just know Josiah goes out into the battle. He's one of the eight good kings. He leads some significant revivals. He jumps into the battle, gets mixed up in the conflict between Babylon, Assyria, and Egypt, And he dies in the battle. A good king dies in the battle. It may be this that is revealed to Habakkuk in the vision that a righteous person has just died. And it may be that Habakkuk writes right after that. And then what's going to follow from after that is in 605, the Babylonians are going to come to complete power when they, in 605, destroy Carchemish, the, the other capital of the Assyrians. And then they're going to come down because they're going to take on the Egyptians. And during um, three successive things, they're going to, in 605, they're going to take some captives away that is going to include Daniel. In, uh, six, uh, in 597, they're going to take some more captives away. That's going to include Ezekiel. And then in 586, they're going to just destroy the city of Jerusalem. Um, all of this is going on. And, and it seems like Habakkuk is writing... As the Babylonians are rising to power, they're not in complete power yet, but they're rising to power. And it may be that this righteous person that I'm going to show you that he's worried about who has died might be Josiah, this really good king. We'll learn more about him next week when we look at Zephaniah. So why was Habakkuk written? Habakkuk gives voice to the heart of faithful believers who see things happening in the world and especially with God's people that seem to not square with God's character. And he's also a model response of faith. He's the antithesis of Jonah, by the way. Jonah and Habakkuk, both stories, both very different because they don't really um, deliver messages to the people. It's the story of their experience. And Jonah's a negative example, but Habakkuk is a great example as a model of how you respond 
in faith to what God is doing. So let's move into uh, how this all uh, works itself out. There's, there's two questions and two answers and then a major response. Um, Habakkuk's first question, why is God silent and justice perverted? God's answer, the Lord's going to use the Babylonians to judge Israel. Can you handle the truth? You ask me a question. <laughs> you can, can you handle the truth that God is going to judge these people? And then his second question, since the Lord is just, how can he use this wicked nation? How can you use a wicked nation? The answer, the righteous have to live by faith. You just got to trust that God's in control. By the way, when nations are in play, um, it's really nice to be able to sit back and go, God's in control. But it is troubling. You can't just glibly sit back and go, well, God's in control. Because you know what? After the service, we're all going to go out and get into our cars, and we're going to put gas in our cars today, um, and we're going to be fine. But if you're in the middle of it, to be able to say God is sovereign and God is in control is a little bit more of a challenge. I've got a chart out there at the Connection Center. You can uh, see uh, how, the, how the book really flows. Um, it's called an oracle, and a number of other books have been called oracles uh, as well, but I'm going to pause for just a moment. Um, an oracle is a massah. Um, that, that's what the word is. It's a technical term, and, and it introduces a message from the Lord. Um, it comes from this root, nasah, that means to lift something up. Um, it, it is basically an oracle. He's raising his voice, and I think he's raising his voice in, in a cry, in a complaint, but also in delivering the message. He's delivering this oracle that, that comes out as this divine crying out. Um, but the book also has a, an idea of carrying something. Your, your voice is carried up, and, and it has this sense that you're carrying a burden, so he is, he is lifting up and raising up this burdensome message, and that is um, people are getting away with wickedness. God's going to deal with it, but he's going to do it with people that he chooses, and, and that may trouble us, and we've got to wait and see how God works this all out. So what's the message? Here's my one sentence on the chart for the book of Habakkuk. The author recorded Habakkuk's questions and response concerning God's justice including Israel's perpetual and unpunished unfaithfulness and his use of ungodly Babylon to judge Israel. And he recorded God's answers. All sin will be, in, be judged by God, God's people and the wicked nations in order to encourage the faithful to patiently wait for God's timing and respond with faith and joy in Yahweh by recognizing his sovereign justice. I'm going to highlight at this point now that what the shift is, is from the questions to the answers to the faith. And finally, there's actually joy. How do you get there? How do you move from the questions, the answers to the trust and finally the joy? Well, here's the path that, that, that Habakkuk takes. He starts off with the Lord is silent as justice prevails. How long, Lord, must I call for help? But you don't listen. Or cry out to you violence, but you don't save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. There is, therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked him and the righteous so that justice is perverted. I look around and, and nothing's being carried out with justice. All of the wrong people are winning. God, what do I do with this? I'm crying out to you, but you're not giving me any answers. 
He's pretty honest. I mean, this is verse 2. He cries out. He gives full vent. And, and again, I want to remind you, in the Psalms, about half of them are laments. About half of the Psalms are people pouring out their heart to God, asking, how can this be going on? And where are you in the middle of all of this? God can handle that. Why do we think he can't? Why do we pretend and think, oh, if we just say everything's okay, oh, um, God's in control, it's going to be fine. You know what? No, I'm troubled. <laughs> I don't know how much longer uh, there's going to be peace in our world. I, I don't know who, who's going to win, the good people or the bad people. I don't know if there are any good people who are even trying to win. Can we talk to God about that? Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. This is one of my um, favorite out-of-context verses that people take. Um, believe it or not, this has been used at weddings. And what they do is they take out the first phrase and they say, be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe. Even if you were told, this wonderful wedding is just such a, a blessing and God's going God's to do something really wonderful and be utterly amazed at what God, God's going to do. Um, I actually have a cup. It's one of my favorite gifts that somebody gave me, and it says this on it. I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. Now, the thing I love about my cup is it's got some of my favorite ones on the back. It doesn't have this one, but it should be there. Because in context, here's what follows um, this passage. Here's the amazing things God is going to do. I'm going to be rising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to see dwellings not their own. Actually, maybe this is appropriate for marriage. I don't know. <laughs> maybe if you are having trouble with your in-laws, maybe this applies. But this, this is God's answer. How can they get away with this? He's going to go on to say this. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? This is where I think maybe perhaps he's got Josiah's death in mind. The wicked have swallowed up this righteous king that we had. We've got so very few righteous kings. And then all of a sudden, this one is swallowed up. And we don't even know why he went out there to battle. What's he doing out there? Why is all of this happening? Maybe this is where Josiah's death comes in. I don't know. I don't have any clear evidence for it. I know it fits in the, in, in the flow of kind of what's going on here. Habakkuk, at the, at the beginning of chapter 2, says this, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. I'm going to go up. I've give, Lord, I've unloaded. Now I'm going to let you give me the answer. I can handle the truth. Well, can you really handle the truth? What's going to happen in chapter 2 is, is really fascinating. He's going to say this. See, the enemy is puffed up. That's the Babylonians. His desires are not upright. And that's all in contrast with this famous statement quoted three times in the, in the New Testament. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. In the middle of all of the questions and the struggles, when the unrighteous are being lifted up and they're proud and they're arrogant and they think they are in charge, 
The righteous person has to just settle down and live according to their faithfulness. Now, when this verse is quoted, the the meaning of it is quoted a number of times um, in the New Testament. This is a key verse in Habakkuk because it summarizes the difference between the proud Babylonians and their destruction and the humble faith of the Israelites and their deliverance. The issue is trust in God. It's not your resources. It's not who's got the right answers. It's do you have the right God that you're trusting in. Um, The words in the context of the Old Testament here in Habakkuk carry a certain ambiguity. There's a double entendre here. The text says that the righteous shall live by his faithfulness, meaning a firm faith that is directed toward God. Habakkuk is drawing upon Genesis 15, 6, where Abraham believes God and it's counted to him as righteousness to show that faith is belief in and firm reliance on the Lord. That's, That's this key part of the transition. It's faith in and firm reliance on the Lord. Paul, quoting from Habakkuk in Romans, leaves out the pronoun, his faithfulness, because he's stressing the kind of faith. The righteous will live by faith. It's this kind of faith. He doesn't personalize it, not your faith. It's the kind of faith that trusts God in everything. The righteous shall live by faith. So Habakkuk, in affirming that faith is the key to one's relationship with the Lord, was teaching that God's favor is secured by trust. He was contrasting this with the proud Chaldeans who trust in themselves. Did you hear Shane, uh, uh, um, Kevin pray this morning? We're exhausted with being our own shepherds. If you're trusting in yourself, it's exhausting. Habakkuk is going to follow this with God's revelation to him that the Babylonians are going to be judged. Um, and in chapter 2, the majority of chapter 2 is these five woes against the Babylonians. God's going to take care of them too. By the way, that's comforting to know that the wicked will be dealt with. The plunderers, the plotters, the pillagers, the perverters, the polytheists, they're going to be dealt with and God will handle them. That's all of chapter 2 is the judgment on them. And then he moves to chapter 3, this wonderful penultimate chapter. Danny Hay says this, this final chapter of Habakkuk is different from the rest of the book. It is in the form of a psalm and it has its own separate introductory superscription. That's where the musical term is used. Habakkuk accepts God's plan for judgment on Judah, but he asks God to remember mercy during his wrath. I know we deserve judgment, but be merciful in that. Habakkuk then um, describes God as a conquering warrior who comes in awesome power who will come against the Babylonians. Yet Habakkuk resolves to be like the person described in chapter 4. He accepts the coming judgment of God, even though it terrifies him. He knows God is just and will eventually judge the Babylonians as well. So because his trust and faith are in God, Habakkuk declares that he will rejoice and find strength in the Lord. He's going to not be like the proud Babylonians, relying on their own strength and their power to dominate others. He's going to be the person who says, no, I've got questions, but I will trust rely, find my solace in the fact that God is sovereign. And then he concludes with these wonderful verses at the end. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no fruit, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will not just trust, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Can you say that? Or is our deal this? I've got questions about what you're doing, God. I'll trust your sovereignty as long as there are plenty of figs, lots of grapes, 
My crops are productive, lots of sheep, and then there'll be joy. Is your joy based on the blessings of God or the character of God? Habakkuk pushes us to the conclusion that we need to base our joy, our rejoicing, our life on the character of God who is sovereign. God can handle your questions. Can you handle the truth? Because the truth is he's not obligated to put figs on your tree or grapes on your vines or cattle in your stalls. He's not obligated to do that but he will bring glory to himself. So what do we do with all this? What do we do? Habakkuk is an honest presentation of a faithful servant of God trying to make sense of the world around him. That's where this fits. It is in the middle of all of these declarations that God will, God will, God will. It's hard to grapple with that. Habakkuk says, yes, it's hard to grapple with it. And Habakkuk demonstrates that honest questions are fine as long as we're willing to hear God's answer and eventually praise him. Honest questions are fine as long as you're willing to handle the truth. Complaint is transformed into confidence as the prophet, certain of God's protective care, anticipates the outpouring of divine justice. He's anticipating this, but his joy comes before it arrives. So what should we believe? God can handle our questions. Ask them. Give full vent to your questions with God. Let that lead you to full trust. We often struggle to understand God's work in the world around us. Believe that. It's not easy to understand what in the world's going on. God's answers are always best, even though they're not always pleasant. Believe that. God's answers are best, not always pleasant. How should we behave? (laughs) Well, he makes it really plain, and everybody in the New Testament picks it up. The righteous shall live by faith. That's how you enter into a relationship with God, and that's how you keep that relationship going. It's by faith. And ultimately, trusting in God to control everything is the only way to live. If you're trying to shepherd your soul, if you're trying to be sovereign in your life, if you're trying to manipulate God, if you're trying to bargain with him to get figs on your tree and grapes on your vine and cattle in your stalls, if you're trying to manipulate and deal with God, it's not the way to live. You're going to exhaust yourself and you'll become part of the object of judgment. But when you trust God, it's the only real way to live and to find life. So what are some next steps? Here's three. Be honest with God about your struggles to understand him and his ways. Be honest with God. We are so quick to just um, make glib theological statements without struggling to get to the truth that they really represent. God is sovereign. Everything's going to be okay. God's in control. Those things are true. They're not glib. Perhaps even take a risk at being honest in community as well. Being honest just to go, you know what, this, this really struggle, I really struggle with this. I really struggle with how this is happening. I really struggle with uh, these things. But ultimately, trust God and recognize we have to live by faith. How do you make the transition from troubled to trusting? Express your troubles, at least to God, and it's probably helpful to do it with others. 
and then make the decision that you're going to trust. And when you, when you rest in the sovereignty of God, the product is joy. So whether there are figs on the tree or grapes on the vine or cattle in my stalls, I will trust in him and I will find joy in the God of my salvation.